Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. As you know, we're getting back into Ephesians this morning. After three weeks of somewhat of a sabbatical, we had uh, the Palm Sunday service, then Easter, and then we had a special speaker in Stu Weber last week who just did a marvelous job in opening the scriptures to us on churchmanship. But now this brings us back this morning to Ephesians chapter 2. So you'll need your outlines and your Bible to follow along with me. Now, just going back a bit to refresh us, you'll remember we looked at Ephesians chapter 1 for several weeks. And if you're like me, you found that it is packed with what I call gourmet theology. Isn't it? High and lofty truths. There's elegant dining for any believer in Ephesians chapter 1. And the food that you find there, the thoughts, the theology, is extremely, extremely rich. And for most of us, quite frankly, we could spend the rest of our life just in that one book with some of the concepts that are there because the whole Christian faith in many ways is exposed there. And uh, one thing that I would just say in thinking about Ephesians 1 is however you think about it, there's one thing that's absolutely clear, and that is you just can't know Ephesians chapter 1. You have to live Ephesians chapter 1. That's the only way that you can understand how great the Lord Jesus is as you move through that great chapter. But now we come and we're poised on the doorstep of Ephesians chapter 2. And before we move into it, there is one observation right at the end of Ephesians 2 that I think is within each of our grasp. And it really kind of sums up this whole first chapter. And that is that Jesus Christ is the star of this opening chapter. He's the focal point. He's the picture. He's the image. He's the one who's lifted up. There's statements made about the Father and there's statements made about the Holy Spirit, but it's Jesus who is the center post of this great opening chapter. And let me just review it for you before I read this last statement in the, uh, this first chapter that will allow us to kind of pole vault into the next. But, you know, as you move through this great first chapter, you find a lot of things that Jesus has done for us. If you start the book and the letter, and you can kind of follow along with me in verse 3, it says that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't understand all that. I don't understand every spiritual blessing. And you don't either, apart from experiencing what those mean in your own life. But they're there. They're available in Christ. Then he goes on in verse 4 and he says that we've been chosen by Him. Then it mentions that we've been predestined in Christ. Uh, now that's, that's some real food to chew on. The doctrine of predestination. In verse 7 it says that we have redemption and forgiveness. And those are things that many of us have experienced, at least in part, this great forgiveness that comes our way. In verse 8 it says that we've been lavished with grace. And again, those are things that you have to grow into experientially to truly feel and understand. The mystery of His will has been made, or God's will has been ava made available to us in Christ in verse 8. See, man left to man cannot penetrate the heavens. He can't go into the transcendent God. God has to come to us. Otherwise, anything we say or do about God is fiction. But in Christ, He's made known to us the will of God. You don't have to guess at it. He's even written it for us to understand. Everything in human history is summed up in Christ. Verse 10. You can read all kinds of history about what history means, but at the end, when the last chapter is written, it will only have one word on it. 
Jesus. That's history. Period. All summed up in Him. Verse 13 says that we are permanently sealed in a relationship through the Holy Spirit into Christ. Holy Spirit does His work, but He's pointing us in the direction of the person of the Son of God. Then in verses 18 through 20, if you look there, it says that as Paul prays, he prays that we might know the hope of God's calling, we might know the riches of His glory, we might know the power of God, all brought about, as it says in verse 20, by Jesus Christ. And then as you move into verses 20 and 23, it says Christ is to be exalted in the future above all rule and all authority. He is the ultimate in authority over all life and the universe. He's above every name, and He's given all authority over all life, not only in this age, but in all the other ages that will unfold into eternity. Christ has all of that. Christ is the star of Ephesians chapter 1. Now, I would confess to you that when I look at that great and lofty theology, I feel like I've only crawled a few inches into it. But there is something that I can understand, and it's mentioned right at the end of this chapter. Look at verse 22. Probably this is the most important of all these statements. At least we can understand them. They're not outside our grasp, and that's this. In verse 22, after it says he's put all things in subjection to his Son under his feet, that he gave him, that is Christ, who's the head of all things, to you and me. Now I can understand that. He's given a person to me. That's Christianity summed up at the very heart. God has given the exalted, inscrutable, incomprehensible, glorious Christ, this person we've read about in things we still don't understand, He's given Him to me to enjoy, which tells me something about Christianity. It's not rules and it's not regulations and it's not ritual and it's not... Religion, per se, as we think about religion or coming to a building, Christianity is God giving His Son to me to enjoy and to relate to and to interact with and to pray to and to find forgiveness in and to overcome with. He's given Him to me to enjoy. I can understand that. Now, how much I'm actually doing that is another matter. But at least here in the beginning is we picture this glorious Christ. Let us understand that that is Christianity. God has given Christ to us to enjoy. And He is so enjoyable because there's no other relationship that won't fail you. There's no other relationship that won't disappoint you. There's no other relationship that has more power and potential and promise than in this one relationship with Jesus. And God has given Him to us to enjoy. That's a tremendous truth. In fact, as you go on, as we'll see later in this great letter in chapter 5, Paul compares our being joined to Jesus Christ as to a marriage. Jesus is said to be the bridegroom, and His church, and His church, don't think in terms of buildings, but His church in terms of people is you and, and me. We're the bride, and we've been joined together, and that should help us understand how intimate God wants this relationship to be with His Son, Jesus. Just like a marriage, a marriage relationship. And so, in a sense, chapter 1 is the first half of a wedding announcement. And the wedding announcement starts with us looking into the 
paper, so to speak, in this picture of his exalted son, this ideal son that we get the opportunity to marry. And it shouts at us. It says, church, this is who you get to marry. This is who you get. And then we move into chapter 2, and it shouts just as loudly, and Jesus, this is who you get. The only problem is, is they don't quite match. <laughs> One's an ideal, and the other's more an ordeal in reality. <laughs> you know, you, you, you would wish that marriage, and some who are contemplating marriage and have stars in their eyes, they want everything to be ideal, and their mate to be just right, and for them to be just right. But it's like someone told me, they said, if you had the ideal husband and the ideal man and the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus standing on a street corner, who would cross first? And this particular lady said to me that the ideal woman would cro cross first because all the rest are just a figment of your imagination. <laughs> well, in this case, with the bride and the church, the shoes are reversed. The ideal bride is just a figment of your imagination. In fact, if you start in chapter 2, verse 1, you can begin to almost feel the ominous tones when Paul says, and you. If you put emotion into it, it sounds, and you. Christ, and you. Have you opened up the Sunday paper, and you see the wedding announcements, and they've got the picture of the, the expectant future bride and groom, and they're holding each other, looking at each other. There's all kinds of different poses. And, and if you're like me, every once in a while, when you're just glancing over those pictures, you'll come upon one, and you'll look at the couple, and you might look at the guy and go, why did she pick him? <laughs> <laughs> or why did he pick her? Somehow they just don't, you know, they just don't look like they match, at least on the exterior. Well, when you open this and begin to read what we're going to read, it's not, you know, in this picture, here's Christ, and next to us, him is us, and this is the wedding announcement, looking forward to the wedding. Something just doesn't look right, at least in the opening. And we want to ask the question, especially as we read down verses 1, 2, and 3, why did he pick us? Now, 4, 5, and 6 are going to answer that, but we're going to start with the first three verses. Let's read them together. It says, And you, spotlight on you, were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, the culture of this world, the culture of this age, the now, right now, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them... We too all, that means everyone, everyone has done this. We formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of humanity. That doesn't sound like a wedding announcement to me. That sounds more like an autopsy report from the morgue. Doesn't it to you? And yet, let me tell you, this is important spiritual truth for each one of us as we start here. If you want to get a good grip on yourself, you need to spend some time thinking and reflecting deeply in these first three verses. Now, I'm going to start you this morning. Notice it starts, and you were dead. What does Paul mean by that? He's not talking, as you know, about physical death, because from the very beginning in Genesis, 
When the Bible talks about death, it's predominantly not talking about physical death. No, this is a singular, succinct phrase. It's consistent with all the rest of what the Scripture testifies about the core problem of man outside of God. And that is that man's core problem is not that he lacks education. Now, I'm all for education, but that's not man's core problem. And man's core problem is not that he doesn't grow up in a good social environment. Some of us have, some of us haven't. But if you're struggling and you're pointing back to there as your core problem, you're missing it because environment is not your core problem. Neither is money or the lack of it. Neither is the government or the lack of it, free or oppressive. A lot of people bank everything in a secular world with natural eyes that if we could clear up these things, utopia would set in. But that's missing the point and the core problem. The Bible continually testifies that man's core problem is that he is spiritually alienated from the life of God. And he has been since Adam. He is dead spiritually. And no amount of social conditioning and education and money though it can make him look good, cannot solve that core problem. He's dead. And when Adam fell, he produced, as Genesis said, after his kind, just like the plants produced after their kind and the birds produced after their kind and the animals produced after their kind. When in the engine room of his soul, when the light went out in Adam's heart and he died, when he reproduced in Cain and Abel, he reproduced after his kind spiritual darkness and deadness. And it showed up when Cain slew Abel, didn't it? And it's been that way kind after kind after kind through time to you and me. That's man's core problem. He's spiritually dead. And like physical death, spiritual death has two predominant characteristics. You might just jot these down. They're pretty obvious, but I think that's good. First of all, spiritual dead people can't respond. Dead people can't respond. If you've seen on TV the last few weeks the pitiful plight of those Kurdish refugees who were up in the mountains trying to escape from Hussein, and, and you watch some of those images, the, probably the one that stands out the most, the most graphic image, is of those mothers clinging to those children who in that inclement weather and those terrible conditions have perished. If I were to think of any powerful force on the earth, one of the most powerful that comes to my mind is a mother's love for a young child. I mean, you can just feel the power of it. And it has unbelievable consequences in the life of a child when a mother gives herself to a child in those first formative years of life rather than to other things. In fact, 75% of all that a child will be, learn, and experience they do because of a mother's bonding by age three. It's an incredible truth. And yet here these mothers are paraded on TV, stroking and kissing and loving and sometimes washing and, 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 and holding and weeping and crying and putting out all the power of that love on that lifeless little body. And it can't respond. You'd want it to respond, but it can't. Because dead people, they don't respond. In spiritual things, when we're born, we're born without the ability 
to respond to God. When Alexander Solzhenitsyn stood before the Harvard graduating class, he made a real interesting statement about the West as he, as he looked at the West and the decline of the West in his mind. And he said, it all boils down to one thing. Men have forgotten God. But you know what? Paul wouldn't agree to that. It's not like men could respond to God and then forget Him. According to the Scripture, men are dead to God. And I'm speaking in the generic sense of men and women. There's no life in them that would even contemplate responding and being responsive to God. Oh, they can have passive, passive acknowledgement of God. They can read about Him in books and they can attend services that, that they can say, yeah, there's a God. But as far as a heartbeat, real life to God, the light is out. That's what Paul says our condition is. A second characteristic of dead people is that they suffer a slow but inevitable corruption. That's why we bury physically dead people, because they're going to decay. I remember when I was on a mission trip to China, we stopped right before the revolution, my daughter and I, we got to tour Tiananmen Square. This was about a month before the revolution came through, and in the middle of Tiananmen Square is the great monument to Mao, and it's said that his body is in there. So we lined up with 10,000 Chinese and went through there to see if he was there. And sure enough, as we moved through, there's this big uh, rotunda-type area, and in a glass case, there's Mao and his body. Except I don't think it's really him. I think it's just a wax sculpt sculpture of him. Because dead men deteriorate. They finally just break down. He couldn't look that good over the last 20 years. Well, spiritually dead people deteriorate. They socially integrate through life. That is, if they are healthy, it, as far as the society goes. They socially integrate. They get jobs, and they, they learn how to interact with people, and they learn how to do things in order to get things, and they move up socially. But over life, Without God, they step down and they deteriorate spiritually, personally, interpersonally, psychologically, emotionally. Without God, people deteriorate over time. That's why it says that people live lives of quiet desperation. Oftentimes by the end of their life, it's just hopeless. They've spent themselves, but yet inside there's nothing. They deteriorate over time. Well, these two words that follow describe what they deteriorate into. Do you notice what it says? Now, in Greek, this little preposition, in, you were dead in, it's, and I, I learned all this, so let me use this. I got a master's. I spent all this time so I could say this one little thing. The in is a preposition. They call it the locative of sp sphere. That means it's what you're locked into. You're locked into a sphere. And the sphere that mankind, apart from God, is locked into is trespasses and sin. That's not a real pretty picture, is it? Trespasses and sin. And those two words summarize all human activity on the planet Earth apart from God. Now you're going to say, well, wait a minute, I don't see people doing bad things necessarily. Uh, they're not out hurting anyone. Well, that's all found in the word trespass. Look at that first word. Proptomasin is what the word is. Sounds like a medicine, doesn't it? I'm going to take some proptomasin. It means to miss one step. It means to have good intentions, but apart from God, the good intentions go awry. 
You slip, you fall, you hurt yourself. Sometimes you grab others and hurt them as you go down. And what you were trying to do, though it was an ideal, a noble ideal, and by the way, depravity of man does not mean that we can't have noble ideas and noble aspirations because we still have the image of God on our heart. We know what's right. We just can't step up to it. We keep slipping and falling and deteriorating and decaying even as we hold up those ideals. I remember one night I got up late in the night because we had just had our fourth child and my wife was exhausted and I thought I'd give her a break and take our little baby Mason, who at that time was just a few months old, and walk him down the stairs and kind of play with him till he was ready to go back to sleep. And I was trying to give my wife some rest, but as I walked down those first few stairs, I slipped. And I can remember the stark terror that I felt as I slipped on that step and I knew I was going down. And so I turned like this to hold Mason and put my elbow out to brace myself and it's the only good karate chop I've ever given, but that oak panel, that flooring, about an inch thick, I went right through it. Just broke it in two. Broke my elbow in two, too. But I went through that thing and slid all the way down. But the point is this. Great intentions to give my wife rest. <laughs> Noble ideal. And we were up all night <laughs> nursing me. All right? That's mankind. See, trespasses does not mean that you're groveling in evil. Trespasses just seem that man is trying to get to where he wants to go, but he keeps missing the mark. And the more he misses it, and the more pain, hurt, and distress it brings, he often discards those ideals early in life, maybe in his 20s, maybe in his teens, maybe in his 30s. He discards those, and he moves from trespasses, noble ideals, to sin. That's different. Harmatia, deliberate, intentional evil. He begins to take shortcuts in life. He begins to take moral shortcuts to get where he wants to go because his aspirations and his trespasses didn't work. He's not getting the money he wants, so he gets it another way. He didn't have the marriage he wants, so he gets it another way. He begins to live for the immediate, or she for the immediate. The focus gets on self. We justify our hurting others because they've hurt us. Harmatia. That's what we do. We begin to violate our conscience. And you know what we find after we violate it enough? It doesn't hurt anymore. At least not as bad. So we begin to go to ever-increasing levels of intensity and do things at points that you and I, in the beginning, when we were in Paraptomasin, we never thought we would do when we hit Harmatia. Crazy things. I've sat with people around my table and watched them weep telling me things that they did and they thought, I never thought I would get there. Ever. Three weeks ago, we had a person sitting in our service worshiping with us on Sunday who on Friday murdered his wife. How did he get there? Harmatia. Dead. Locked in. To trespasses and sin. That's the slow corruption. Even as you climb the social ladder of integration, you walk down the steps of deterioration spiritually without God and end in quiet desperation. That's where mankind is on planet Earth. Without Christ. Now notice there's some forces behind that in verses 2 and 3. 
the forces behind this corruption. You might even circle these to kind of summarize. We won't be able to go into great detail. But you might circle the words in verse 2, this world. And then in verse 3, our flesh. See, those are the only two options that we have apart from God. This world. Now, what is this world? This world is our environment. It's, nat it's the nurture, nurturing environment that we live in. And that environment, and this is the word I'd like you to write down next to this world, is it programs us. Very few of us understand the power of environment. But the reason we dress like we do here in Little Rock, the reason some of you are going to go immediately after this service to the Golden Arches, is because you were programmed to go there. You didn't choose to go there. You were programmed to go there. You see? And we rarely understand how strong this programming is in regards to our life. To have things, to be certain, certain things, to look a certain way. We think we're individuals. But individuality is a marketing tool. They want you to feel like an individual. So you'll go out and buy this and do that and feel like an individual, yet look like everybody else. Now I want you to know there are some powerful shapers of environment. Oftentimes when we look through human history, we single out certain men, certain uh, 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 tremendous leaders who shaped our environment, who gave off ideals like a Stalin or a Hitler in the negative sense or in the good sense like a Shakespeare or whatever. There are some noble and not some not, then some not so noble. But I want you to know behind all culture, shaping it and moving it, is someone who is a great social architect. A social engineer. And it's in the next verse. It says, not only according to the course of this world, the culture of this day, but according to the prescribed plan of the prince of the power of the air. There's a spiritual force behind culture. Even as we hold up noble ideas on the surface, but underneath we indulge and live opposite many of those ideals. The reason those that culture is mixed and people are allowing us to do things and telling your wants or your rights and that kind of thing is because behind it is a philosopher of philosophers, Satan, a spiritual being who we can't comprehend fully. But he shapes this age, and that's why he moves every age away from God. And on to self. Just like, remember, in the garden, when Eve met the serpent, he wanted to move her away from God and on to self. You'll be like God. And that programming is going off every moment of every day in the lives that you and I live. It's telling us that our happiness is the goal of life. It's telling us that we don't have everything that we need it's telling us that our wants are our rights, that we can save ourselves, and that this life is all that there is. It programs us. Even the Christian, it has an unbelievable impact on your life and on my life. So much of who we are and what we say and what we do, we're just following a prescribed plan. There's no way to break out of that if men are dead to God. Because that's one of the only choices they have. Now they have a, a second choice. There's another choice. And it's found in verse 3 when it says, This flesh, this flesh, or our flesh rather, among them we too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. We indulged the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath. We were these foolish children of wrath following this. Now our flesh doesn't program us. Here's what our flesh does. Our flesh drives us. It drives us. 
It makes us do things, and we're not sometimes even, un, it's unreasonable the way it drives us, but it does. It pushes us to do things. The flesh, the passions, the sensual side of man was originally intended to be good, and it was intended to be used in a healthy way, but according to the instruction of God. But see, when you're dead to God, the flesh is like an engine out of control. It's passion out of control. It begins to drive us. In fact, the word desire there, indulging the desire of the flesh, the word desire in Greek is also the word drive. Indulging the drives of the flesh. Not doing it because it's right. After a while, you're doing it because you can't control it. And one of the reasons you can't control it is because there's no other pleasure in life than those little fleeting pleasures because life, this life is all there is. And how did you come to that conclusion? Because the world told you. And then you go out and you live in the world and do what they say and those illusions fall down and that brings pain and so you run back because that little bit of pleasure numbs the pain. Back and forth we go. Programming and pain, pain to pleasure. Pain, pain, pleasure back to programming, programming to pain to pleasure. And we die in quiet desperation. That's no fun, is it? That doesn't read good here. And yet, that's really what it's telling us about ourselves. That's the portrait of every person on planet Earth before the intervention of God, before Christ. Now, there's some of you who are probably here in the audience, maybe the younger ones, who, even if I make this appeal, you're not going to believe it because you're too programmed. You think, I'm going to go out, I'm going to have a good marriage, and I'm going to do this, and life's going to, you know, I'm just going to have everything right at the top. And you may make some good headway for a while. And you may even get the things that you want and then realize how empty they are. And there are others of us who may be older and we've tried all these things and a lot of them hadn't worked, but rather than come to our senses, which we can't if we're dead, we think if we redouble our efforts, if we just work a little harder, maybe if we get a fresh start, take chapter 11 or chapter 13 or chapter 26 for that matter, we take one of those things, somehow we can get all the problems behind us. Get a new job, get a new wife, get a new husband. Do those things, start over, we're smarter now. No, you're dead. That's where you are. And you'll just repeat the same scenarios. That's man. And you wonder, how could Christ pick me to be his bride? See, we're alienated from God. And in trespasses, we're alienated from God. We're set apart from God because we're dead. But then as we move into sins, then we're against God. And that's why when you get down at the end of verse 3, it says, and we're by nature children of wrath. See, wrath implies punishment. It implies that we're going to be punished, that there are consequences, negative consequences for sins. I like what someone once said. He said, you don't break God's laws. God's laws break you. And I have found that to be true in my life, haven't you? God's laws break us. We don't really break them. Uh, we were at the ballpark the other night for a ball game and got there early, and I got some M&Ms and gave them to my sons. And uh, it's a little game that I played when I was a kid. And, and, but remember, now we're talking on a children of wrath level here. And uh, so I, I, I got this little game going where we each get the certain color M&Ms and we see which M&M is the strongest. What you do is you take, you take your M&M and 
He takes him and his M&M and you put them together and you start pressing them with pressure. And finally, one of the M&Ms always cracks first. Now, what's the point? <laughs> well, the point is this. When I read this last phrase, if I were explaining to my son, God is the ultimate iron M&M. And we live our lives pressing against him with our sins, thinking somehow we're going to break through and have it our way. But it never works. We always crack first in pain and in desperation, in death. Then why pick us? It's a great question. Because really, as you get to this point in verse 3, and here's the portrait, the wedding announcement, here's Christ, here's us. Boy, we need a lot of airbrushing. <laughs> I mean, a major reconstruction job. But how do we get to be something different than that? Well, look at verse 4. He says, but God. Boy, this is a great statement. But God. See, Christ, chapter 1, and you, chapter 2. But now, but God. There's something God did to change this hopelessness. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Now, in your outline, I call this the great intervention. And it is a great intervention. Remember, we're dead. We can't respond. How do we ever get to Christ? If you talk to a social worker or a counselor, they will from time to time use the word intervention. And there have been interventions here at the church. There, I have been aware of interventions in, in different friends of mine. But an intervention is, if I can just follow some counseling here, is where people and friends and family see a person who has gone into a sphere of illusion thinking they're okay and are destroying themselves. And they have become helpless. And the only way that shell can be broken and they can get a new perspective on their situation is for friends and family to gather around and intervene on that person's behalf and tell them how much they love him or her, hoping that somehow that will give them a new perspective on their situation. For instance, uh, a good friend, he, he's not only a friend, but he's a relative of mine. Great businessman down in Louisiana, but he's an alcoholic. Nobody knew he was an alcoholic except a few close friends and family. And he was going about his business, but and, and everybody, he was moving up the social ladder. He'd even gotten into government and become a state representative in Louisiana. But the whole time he was moving this way, his life personally was going this way. And one day he walked into his law office, and there were 20 of his closest friends and family shocked him. And each one individually went around the room. It took about two hours to go through all of them. But they told him how much they loved him and cared for him and wanted what's best for him. It was their love just exuding out in this incredible, incredibly powerful experience. But they said, you're killing yourself. You're hopeless. You're helpless. You're out of control. You're on a path of personal self-destruction. And we want to help save you because we love you. And it was in that incredible intervention that for the first time, it was like a light went on. And the person said, these people can't be telling me a lie. I must be destroying myself. I need help. I need to be saved. And he was, by the way. That's the good news. 
God is the great intervener in life. It's not that you have to be an alcoholic. You can be a guy who's, or a gal who's doing great in life and yours is a much more subtle, not forceful slide into the pit. Life's just restless and boring and uncomfortable and you're just not who you want to be and things are just not working out the way they should and you're indulging and moving from trespasses to sin and life's just getting a little harder the longer you go. But you're on a path of self-destruction and then God intervenes. He's the great intervener. And He moves in with His great, incredible, powerful love in ways that I still don't understand. But suddenly, it's like because of His great love, notice there, being rich in mercy, because of His great love, somehow this shell, this locket of sphere, trespasses and sin, is broken. And we see that we're never going to change and life is never going to get better apart from an encounter with the living God. But it's because of Him moving on us and us feeling that He wants us, do we get the power to even know to choose Him. I hear people come in from time to time, I've said it myself, really, and they'll say, we'll be interacting, and they'll say, let me tell you how I found Christ. I've used that phrase, haven't you? How I found Christ. You know, the truth is, you didn't find Christ. That's the reality. Because you're dead. Dead men don't look for anything. See, the reality is, is Christ found you. And only in finding you, only, this is, by the way, the great doctrine of predestination, but only in finding you, only because he saw your estate and he was moved with compassion and mercy, not law, but love, and reached out to you, only when he did that in a variety of ways and feelings and through people, suddenly the spell was broken and you saw you needed to be saved. And the only way you could be saved was to be joined to Christ, your marriage partner. That's what we're talking about here. That's the choice. A slide into desperation. Our moving from death to life. See, we've been fooled all these years. We thought when we were born, we were alive and we were headed for death. But the reality is, is we were born dead. But the purpose and the goal is to move to life. Look at verse 5. That's why it says, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive. See, this is not an active voice verb. If you remember your English, you didn't make yourself alive. I didn't become alive on my own. He made me alive. For by grace, you've been saved. I could give you a lot of ways of looking at that, but I think the best way to give you an illustration is through a person. And so I'm going to ask at this point if David... Howell would come and share with us how Christ intervened in his life. David? Well, despite a good deal of nervousness, I am glad to be here, have the opportunity to share with you, and I'm equally thankful that Robert uh, didn't mention my name uh, as he was describing that dead state, because he certainly could have probably entitled it uh, uh, my story. About a year ago, uh, God intervened in, in my life um, through various people and events and uh, brought me to the point that I realized that I was dead in my sins and trespasses and um, by His grace, I became alive um, with Christ. There were 
many events over a, a period of time, um, as I look back, uh, that God caused to, to happen, uh, both from a, a business and, and personal point of view. Uh, my story in many ways is not unlike uh, many of you probably sitting here in terms of being lost. Uh, when you're lost, I guess you're, you're lost. I grew up in a church, or at least around a church, and had loving parents that encouraged me. But I never knew the Lord, and I never sought Him in any endeavor or undertaking that, that, uh, uh, that I took on. I felt highly self-sufficient, that um, had a lot of confidence in myself, and felt as if anything that came my way is as a problem that I could solve uh, just with a lot of hard work, perseverance, determination, and a lot of mental toughness. I defined um, life as um, um, and success as piling up uh, as much materiality as you could pile up. And I defined it uh, further as, as a destination that uh, you might reach. And once you gathered all the materiality that, um, that you sought, and I thought the way to, to get there was to uh, increase life speed, that um, just turn it on, work a little harder, stay a little longer, and, and uh, these things would come to pass uh, much quicker. And so because of this lifestyle and these goals, I chose to work really hard, and uh, unfortunately, uh, at the expense of nearly everything else in my life. But I found as I went along that no amount of success that, that came my way ever brought me real happiness or certainly any peace or filled the emptiness that, um, that was just seemed to be ever present. My personal life and my marriage uh, were not healthy. The business that uh, I had left Northwest Arkansas to, to come uh, to run and operate, I had left and so I got to a point in my life, I guess for the first time in 20 years and maybe forever, that um, I took some time just to look at really how inwardly at how miserable and how really hopeless uh, I was due to the, the events um, that I had led myself, uh, uh, the path that I had led. And then, as Robert mentioned, um, um, God began to, to work in my life in a way that um, as I look back, um, was, was destined for me. People and things began to, to uh, work in a more positive way, and I began to, to um, uh, as I reached out, realize my helplessness and hopelessness, I saw some, some real positive truths. And um, they were things such as uh, Libby Strawn, who's a, a friend of uh, Kay and mine, that uh, uh, began witnessing to her, and Jim and Libby's lifestyle as, as we knew them as friends um, were appealing to us because they had something we didn't have and we realized we wanted and badly needed. And then I got better acquainted with Bill Smith. Um, and uh, during a ostensible business lunch, um, I unwittingly opened the door to, to uh, let Bill uh, introduce some gospel. And for those of you that know Bill, you don't have to open that door very widely. Um, and so Bill and I really um, became uh, very, very close friends, and, and his message really spoke to my heart. 
and I realized uh, even more deeply that I truly was helpless and apart from, from Christ, I really was nothing and could do nothing despite all this confidence and all this uh, ego that, uh, that I had before. And so Kay and I came to, to the Lord about the same time and at this time, um, Phil and Marge Price came alongside and along with Bill um, helped us to dig our, our spiritual roots deeper uh, helped us to understand better what a Christian, Christian commitment is all about and have helped us grow spiritually since. And in addition uh, to that, we joined this, this wonderful church, uh, which we're so blessed and thankful, and the leaders, leadership that, that we have here, and, and also to, to many of you that uh, have been so loving and, and kind and have reached out to, to Kay and me since we've been here. After coming to, to Christ and begin to try to relate to you some of um, <clears throat> my happiness and joy that uh, um, I guess before I do, I'm mindful of the words of C.S. Lewis who, who warned uh, one not to uh, uh, let one's imagination exceed one's obedience and imagine conditions far beyond any that have really been reached. And so I certainly uh, heed that warning and would be the first to say that I have anything but but arrived. But I can say that, that knowing God and endeavoring to live the Christian life is, has indeed changed my life. Um, I feel God's presence and I know that, that He's real and it's alive because He's done things in my life that only He could have done. And when I slip from the uh, sanctification circle that, that uh, Robert shared with us and take back control of my life from time to time and get discouraged, I, I try to remember what it was like before I did know him and was so desperate. And so far, that's never failed to, to kind of bring me back. But I still very much are in process of, of being changed, and, and I often um, feel that I'm not as far along in that process as I need to be. But uh, I try to remember the great apostle Paul who told us to press on. And so I try to press on. In closing, um, let me share a passage with you that's, that's been uh, of great encouragement and has given me much assurance uh, over these past several months, and that's from John 5:24, where Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. You know, when I uh, <clears throat> listened to David in the first service say that, I was thinking of a number of probably young men who were up in northwest Arkansas when he was a successful businessman saying, when I get there, I'm going to be great. And there was David there in the state he was talking about. That's what we're talking about, dead in trespasses and sin. Now let me just quickly as we close, I want you to look at just a couple of more things that have resulted in us having encountered Christ in this great intervention. There are three phrases you just might underline. The first is, he made us alive. Do you see that there in verse 5? That's in contrast to verse 1 where it says that we were dead. That we were dead. The Bible calls this justification. Coming alive. Secondly, look at verse 6. It says that we were raised up with Him, raised up with Christ. Now, it doesn't go on, but there's a whole theology that the book of Romans, especially 6, 7, and 8, have to do with this one little phrase. It's talking about being raised up in power, 
instead of being enslaved to our nature and to our environment. That's what he's talking about here. We have the power to live differently than the world and the dictates of our passion. That's what he's talking about here. We don't have to go along with the herd mentality. Some of you have read the far side and I have a far side calendar and and I was looking at Gary Larson's far side this week on one of the days and it pictures this field full of sheep and you got to see these sheep they're just dumb looking they're bored they're going about what sheep do not asking any questions about life but in the background is this one sheep with his hooves raised up in the air and he's going wait wait listen to me we can be more than just sheep well it was funny to me <laughs> I guess you had to see the picture on that one, but, <laughs> but in a very real way, when it says, don't just go by when it says we were raised up with him from the dead, because really the shout is, you don't have to be a mere man, a mere woman, going along with the herd, indulging the passions, because now they've got control of you, you don't have control of them, or just doing what the environment tells you to do because there really are no other choices. You can be different because you have power. And lastly, notice it says in verse 6 at the very end, it says we were seated or he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now that, by the way, many people have different interpretations, but I look at it just as it says, and that is that we've been seated with Christ, but this is an event according to the Bible, that's still future. Certainly we can commune into the heavenlies because Christ sits there. But this passage is talking about a future state in which we will be with Christ in honor. Because when you're seated, you're seated in honor. Christ has already preceded us. God raised Him from the dead, brought Him into heaven, seated Him. That's a figurative phrase, but to be seated means to be placed in the place of honor. And Paul is so sure that you and I are going to get there eventually, this bride, that he speaks of it, if you'll notice in the past tense, that we've been seated with him in the heavenly places. Now the book of Revelation tells us about a future wedding feast. Remember, chapter 2 starts us with the wedding announcement. Christ and his bride. And boy, it's not too good there. But then you move through history and you move into eternity and you come and when you're finally seated, when it, the moment of the wedding feast comes and we're joined face to face with our great Savior, we've gone through justification, being made alive, sanctification, being raised up from the dead, and glorification, being seated in honor with Him. And you know what? We're going to look pretty good at that moment. We have been transformed. So much so that the other beings that are in eternity, whoever they are, they'll look at us and say, what a gorgeous bride. Did you know that's what God has in mind? Look at verse 7. It says he's done this in order that in the ages to come, the ages that are going to unfold, that he might show to who? Well, over in chapter 3, verse 10, it says the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I mean, some people say as we send out these probes into space, is there life out there, other kinds of life? The Bible says in many places there are all kinds of other beings. But they're not as special. Because in us, seated at this table in honor, at the head table, God will be able to show through us that will make others guess things that He's not showing through them. Here's my bride. And He'll be able to demonstrate incredible kindness and awesome mercy and love, infinite love 
But it's going to be through these trophies called His church, us, as we sit there in honor with Him. Well, there's two applications I'd like to conclude with. You just might jot them down real quickly. In verses 8 and 9, by the way, 8, 9, and 10 give the application to verses 1 through 7. And I think the first application in 8 and 9 is to the unbeliever who's here. And it's this, let Christ save you. You say, well, how? Maybe I'm feeling uncomfortable. Maybe my life has gone downhill. Uh, maybe the things I've grabbed onto now just seem empty. How can I let Christ save me? Well, look what it says. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. That's the channel. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. You can't clean up your act. You can't get better for God. He looks at you as dead, and He accepts you just that way. And then He moves on your life, and maybe you feel even this morning Him moving on your life. And you say, what do I do? What do I change? Nothing. You just believe. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Faith is just believing. But now let me tell you, real faith is exclusive. You can't believe in Coke and drink Pepsi. If you believe in Coke, you'll drink Coke. If you believe in Christ, if in your heart you want to believe in Him, then believe. But that means you cannot believe in yourself. And it means you can't believe in your world. If you believe with that kind of faith, you'll be saved. God will join Himself to you as a potential future marriage partner, and then He will commit Himself to do to you to make sure that that marriage comes about. Let Christ save you. Let Him. Stop striving. Let Him save you. Past tense. Then secondly, for those of us who believe, it says, let Christ use you. Look at verse 10. It says, for we are His workmanship. Now he's talking about the believer here, and he says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has already prepared that we should walk in them. See, a lot of us believers are still restless, and the reason we're still restless is because we're not availed to do what we were created to do. We're writing this long script about our life and it's just all over the page and it's not in any kind of order. But we're His workmanship. The word workmanship is poema from which we get poem. Christ has, wants to make us a beautiful poem that rhymes. It's all tight and it fits and it makes sense and it brings emotion and satisfaction. Let Christ use you. Stop being a vessel of broken relationships and of selfishness. Start letting Him use you to reconcile with others and to live for others and to use your gift. Get aggressive about the things of the Spirit of God, the things of the Word of God. And if you do that in faith, because it takes faith to do that as well, then what should bloom in your life is a deeper satisfaction about life, a sense that you're going somewhere and doing something, you've been recreated out of the dead for something that you were made for, and it'll feel good. But if you go back to the old patterns of just chasing after what the world dictates or doing what your passions say, even as a believer, even though saved, even though you'll be at the table, you won't feel good right now because you're not doing that for which you were created.
Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.